Hey, I have missed you. Last week we missed because I was in Spanish Wells, Bahamas, uh, sharing with the, at a women's conference down there, uh, sharing Corey Timboom and then sharing about the armor of God. But I am back again, praise God, and we are going to start back into the book on chapter 28 of Betsy Timboom, Promise of God by Mike Evans, with permission from Time Worthy Books. Let's read. We arrived back at the Bayet a little past noon. Noontime had passed and no one had eaten, so I hurried up to the kitchen and brought out leftover stew, a fresh loaf of bread, butter, jam. Lewis and Tools and Corey came from the shop and we sat down to eat while the water for tea heated in the kettle on the stove. Midway through our meal, the floor began to shake and a rumbling noise swept past the front of the house. Corey and I rushed to a window in the parlor to see what was happening. When we looked down the street, below we saw a line of heavy trucks rolling past us. They lumbered up the street. They slowed near Grout Mart and turned right, disappearing from our line of sight. But the straining against the edge of the window to see as far in that direction as possible, I noticed a group of people gathering at the square. At that point, Corey and I were more interested in finding out where the trucks were going than we were in finishing lunch, so we left the dishes on the table and headed for the door. Corey and Lewis rushed ahead. I came with Papa at a slower pace. Tools remained at the shop. When we reached Grout Mart, we saw the trucks that had passed the house were parked side by side along the far edge of the square. The center of the square was filled with people, all of whom wore the yellow star on their clothing. Most of them clutched a small suitcase or a bag of what appeared to be their most treasured possessions. Photographs, books, one person was even holding a porcelain vase. Around the edge of the square, townspeople formed a perimeter. Many of them were mere onlookers, but some had come to jeer in anger at the Jews. Several shouted words of encouragement to the German soldiers who were herding the people from the center of the square towards the trucks. The soldiers who seemed to appreciate the crowd's support were shouting at the Jews to move faster and shoving them when they did not. I saw one soldier grab a small child by the back of his shirt and toss him into one of the trucks with the same mindless effort one would dispose of trash. Another treated an elderly lady much the same. Suitcases, boxes littered the square with articles of clothing strewn everywhere. Papa held my arm as we stood there staring in disbelief at the scene unfolding before us. Tears ran down his face and he choked them back to say, I knew that registration was wrong. And look, he appointed, the council is here watching. To the left of the trucks were six men dressed in business suits. I recognized two of them as neighbors of Rabbi Prince. They are responsible for this, Papa growled. They sent their own people to the camps. But why, Corey lamented. To save their own lives, I'm sure, Papa snarled. But the soldiers are in an even worse predicament. They cannot refuse to obey an order. And yet obeying that order means treating God's people like this. They will not get away with it. Just then, two soldiers pushed past us. Between them was an older man about Papa's age, and they were prodding with the butt of their rifles, urging him to hurry. As they passed us, the old man stumbled, and one of the soldiers reached down to help him up. Suddenly, an officer raced towards him, red-faced and angry, and shouting at the top of his voice, Get him in the truck! When he reached the soldier who was helping the old man, he shouted even louder, Are you out of your mind? He's not your grandfather, he's the enemy. As if to demonstrate the expected behavior, the officer kicked the old man in the leg, sending him trembling to the ground. 
Then he stepped forward and kicked the man in the side repeatedly, emphasizing his words with each swing of his leg as he said, Get these stinking Jews on the trucks. The two soldiers joined in, kicking the old man as he struggled again on his feet. But just as he was able to stand, he fell again. The soldiers glanced over at the officer who doubled over in laughter. The soldiers grinned and kicked the old man again. Papa wiped his eyes and looked at us. That's what I'm telling you. The soldier's first impulse was to do good, but he can't, because if he does, the officer will discipline him. And the more evil they do, the more evil tightens its grip on them. Soon they won't even react with spontaneous kindness. Soon they will have no conscious awareness of good at all. And then they will be lost, totally blind and totally lost. All the while Papa talked, I wondered why we didn't do something. There were hundreds of people there and not more than 50 soldiers. We were not armed, but they could not kill us all before we gained the upper hand. Perhaps we could not stop them from ultimately accomplishing their goal, but we could have prevented them from doing it that day. If we had acted on what we had sure many of us were thinking, some of the Jews in the square would have been saved. Instead, we just watched, and the sight of it made me sick. Before all the trucks were loaded, I gave Papa a tug and suggested we, we return home. He agreed, and we started in that direction. Corey and Lewis followed. When we arrived back at the Bayet, we saw an army truck parked outside of Ville's Furriers. Suddenly, the door to Ville's shop flew open, and he appeared, following immediately by two German soldiers who were hitting him with the butts of their rifles, in much the same way we had just seen others do at the Grout Mart. Above them, another soldier appeared at the upstairs window, laughing and grinning as he threw Bill's clothes down the street. One of the soldiers on the street stuck out his foot and tripped Bill, sending him tumbling to the pavement. The others stepped forward quickly and kicked him once or twice. You're lucky we didn't kill you, they shouted. You filthy Jew, stay out. This is no longer your shop. With Ville lying in the street, the soldiers returned to the shop and brought out armfuls of furs, which they piled into the truck. I'd been ashamed of myself for not helping Cons weeks before, sick over what we had just allowed to happen in Grout Mart. Only minutes before, as I walked with Papa back to the house, I had resolved in my mind that I would not stand by quietly again. So without hesitation, I let go of Papa's arm, dashed to the street, and knelt by Bill's side. Corey was with me, and Lewis joined me. Together we helped Bill stand. Come on, I said, when he was on his feet. Get your things. We can take them to the shop. Frantically, we grabbed up what we could carry in our arms and hurried Bill over to the bayet. When we were inside, Papa closed the door and locked it. Then we continued up to the parlor and deposited Bill's belongings on the table. He was out of breath, Blood oozing from a scrape on his forehead, but he rushed to the window to look across at his shop. Corey, Papa, and I joined them there and watched while the soldiers emptied the building. My wife is in Amsterdam, Bill said finally, visiting family. She's supposed to return in two days. I need to get word to her and tell her not to come back. With the phone service no longer working, we'd have to stand in line to place a call, I replied. Soldiers will listen to everything you say. Bill looked over at me. But I have to do something. I can't let her come back to this, he said, gesturing towards the shop across the street. What about William? Corey offered. Think he can help? He might, I nodded. He had developed connections to many people through his work with the home for the elderly. Someone might be able to assist Bill in reaching his wife. I could go find him and see, Corey offered. Minutes later, she was on her bicycle pedaling towards William's house north of town. 
It was quite a distance away, but we had no choice other than to try. While she was gone, Bill and I sipped a cup of tea. He calmed down enough to take a few bites of bread, but he wasn't interested in the stew. So I placed it in the pie safe and then cleared the luncheon dishes from the table. I was about to ask for his help at the sink when I heard the truck engine from across the street. Are they leaving, I asked. Bill walked over to the window and looked out. They're going. He started towards the stairway. What are you doing, I shouted after him. I want to see if they left anything. By then, he was already downstairs at the door. I tossed aside my apron and hurried to catch up with him. If some of the soldiers were still there in the house, or if they returned while he was there, they might shoot him on sight. I flew down the stairs, jerked open the door, and dashed across the street. Papa was seated at his desk, and Louis was at his workbench. But I paid them no attention. By the time I caught up with him, Bill was entering his shop. I expected him to stop and stare in sadness at the mess they'd made of his business and to hear him scream and shout. Instead, he charged up the steps to the second floor and hurried towards the back room. By the way he moved, I knew he wasn't merely looking around. He had something specific in mind. Like the entire second floor, the back room was stripped bare. All the furniture was gone, as were the drapes and pictures from the wall. Val seemed not to notice, but rushed towards the doorway to the far side of the room and knelt at the wall. He felt with his hands along the baseboard and grasped it and gave it a tug. The board came free, and a small cloth sack fell out up from the wall. Vail held it in his hand, pulled open the drawstrings. A smile came to his face when he looked inside. Her jewelry, he said, glancing back at me, and some money. He shoved the sack into his pocket, replaced the baseboard, and stood. I didn't think they would find it. Just then a car stopped on the street out front, and I heard a door open. One glance out the window told me what I'd feared before. Two soldiers had returned. We've got trouble, I said. Bill looked puzzled. What? Germans. I started towards the door. Where's the back stairs? We don't have one, he said, following me up the hallway. Then come on, we'll have to hurry. Walking on my tiptoes, I moved quietly down the stairs to the first floor. Bill was behind me and whispered, There isn't a back door either. You're kidding, I said in disbelief. No. Then what do you do with the garbage? It sounds like a silly thing to say now, but at the moment it was a question that popped in my mind. Trash collection took place from the valley. If they didn't have a back door, they had to walk all the way around the block. We threw it out the window, he answered. A window? Yes. We could get out that way. Where's the window, I asked. Bill pointed to the right, and I went in that direction. Behind me I heard the doorknob rattle, and my heart skipped a beat. Then I heard a familiar voice and glanced over my shoulder to see Papa standing at the door, talking to the German soldiers. Something about trouble we'd had with the soldiers in the neighborhood. With Bill in the lead, we doubled back behind the staircase and came to a window that looked out onto the valley. Sure enough, just beyond the building was a pile of garbage waiting to be collected. Bill pushed open the window and held my hand while I crawled out. Then he came after me, and we raced down the alley to the right. At the cross street, we turned right again, came to the corner a block down from the Bayet. We paused there, hoping the soldiers were gone, but the car was still parked outside of Bill's shop. So we continued on to the next corner and came up on the street behind our house. Papa was waiting by the staircase when we arrived through the back door. That was too close, he said with a worried shake of his head. If that soldier had been looking where I was looking, you'd be in custody now. Thanks, I replied, trying not to make too much of the incident. You scared me, Papa continued. 
But I wasn't really scared at all, I quirped as we moved past him. Now I'm even more worried. Our escapade had made the opposite effect on Bill's nerves. He was calmer than ever and obviously relieved at finding his valuables. He was also hungry, and I led the way to the kitchen for a bowl of stew. In a few hours, Corey returned to say that William was not at home. Only Teen and Kick were there, she reported, but Kick agreed to help. He's coming tonight. Tonight, I asked. What about the curfew? He says it won't be a problem. It will be a problem if we get caught, Bill spoke up. Perhaps this kick is a Nazi sympathizer and he wants me to wait here so he can turn me in. I assure you, Papa said, none of my grandchildren would lift a hand against the Jews or assist anyone who did. That evening, while we waited for kick, we sat in the parlor and I played the piano. We knew better than to bring the radio from its hiding place and display it in front of Ville. Jew or not, he was human, and if pressed, he might be forced to reveal its presence in our house. The less he knew, the better for everyone. After three songs into the evening activities, the doorbell rang downstairs, and Corey went to answer it. I paused at the piano, listening to hear who it might be. Then Corey exclaimed in a deliberately loud voice, Captain Borman, what brings you out so late? With just seconds to spare, I sprang from my seat at the piano and took Ville by the hand. Moving as quickly as I could without making noise, I led him to the storage nook behind the staircase. Stay in here, I ordered in a whisper, and don't come out. Someone will come and get you when it's clear. Before he could respond, I closed the door and walked as calmly as possible back to the kitchen. Corey detained Borman downstairs as long as she could, but finally he insisted on coming up to where we were. She was behind him, and as they approached, she spoke up. This is Captain Borman. Do you remember him? Yes, I nodded, trying not to be too friendly, lest after the cold shoulder I gave him before, he might now become suspicious. He's asking about... I can ask my own questions, Borman snapped. And what would those questions be, I asked. I saw you in the street today with the furrier, Bill, and I was wondering what happened to him. Borman's voice took a rather effete tone, and he seemed to be toying with us. What happened to whom? To Bill? Yes, to Bill. We came to his shop, and then he was gone. Someone said he came over here. I don't know who would have said such a thing, I replied. It was true. I didn't know who was among our neighbors who would have talked to the Germans, but it was a coy answer. Then you won't mind my having a look around. Borman's voice was businesslike and serious. I shook my head. Not at all. Help yourself. He wandered through the parlor and the dining room and every few steps paused and rapped on the interior walls with his knuckle. When he did, his head was turned sideways and there was a look of concentration on his face. Shaking to see if it's hollow, Papa said later when I asked him about it, looking for hiding places. Borman paused on the far side of the room and glanced around. Perhaps the rumors we heard were just that, he said, flashing a smile in my direction. Rumors. Then he tipped his hat, stepped out to the hallway, and started down the front steps. I waited near the parlor door until I heard the sound of the door closing, and then stepped quickly to the window and looked out to see if he was really gone. In the shadows of the streetlight, I saw him walking towards the corner down the street to the right. From behind the staircase came a rattling noise, and Corey turned at once. No, she said with a frightening tone. I followed her around to the storage closet where Ville was just coming out. No, no, Corey said anxiously. You must wait. But it's hot and stuffy in there, Ville protested. If he comes back and finds you, he'll... The door downstairs rattled, interrupting Corey in the mid-sentence, and our eyes opened wide. Corey gave Ville a push and closed the door in his face, and then we started back towards the kitchen. As we turned the corner of the hallway, Captain Borman appeared at the top of the steps. 
Papa, who was sitting in the dining room, gave him a nod. Good evening once again. Borman did not reply, but glanced around suspiciously, checking the hall. Still without saying a word, he turned around, retreated down the steps, and out to the sidewalk. I cut my eyes at Corey. He's suspicious. Yes, she nodded. I believe he is. But now I'm wondering if my meeting him at the butcher shop was an accident. You think they're watching us? Yes, I nodded. I do. But how? Isaac Franken. Papa spoke up. He's on the council. We saw him at the square. He could have easily pointed Borman towards us. Several hours later, Kick arrived to collect Bill. Where were you taking my ass? You shouldn't ask too many questions, Kick replied playfully. What about his wife? Were you able to get word to her? I'll send someone tomorrow for the details. We can contact her then. We can't get news to her sooner. We don't want her to return and find the German soldiers in her apartment. Kick shook his head. Not tonight. I'll send someone in the morning. Who? I'm not sure yet. Does it matter? How will we know this person is from you? Well, Kick grinned. For one thing, he'll be a boy dressed like a girl. My mouth dropped open. A boy dressed like a girl? Conscription squads are paroling the streets, looking for men able to work in German factories. They almost got Peter the other day on his way to school. Our house has been searched several times. Best way to avoid them is to not look like a boy. Boys go out dressed as girls? No one wants to be taken to Germany, he grinned. It's the best way to travel in the daytime. You've done this yourself? You asked too many questions, he laughed. But look closely. Some of them were rather convincing. Then he and Ville stepped from the bayet and disappeared into the darkness. The next morning, a woman appeared at the shop. She was wearing a dress, stockings, her hair was shoulder-length, but when she spoke, her voice was a husky tone. Corey called upstairs for me, and I came at once. She turned away as I approached, and I was left to face the woman alone. You're Betsy, he, she said with a husky man's voice. For an instant, I was speechless, and Corey burst into laughter. You should have seen the look on your face, she cackled. I've come to see about a watch, she continued, trying to keep a straight face. I was told to ask for Betsy. What's your name, I asked. Hendrick, he replied. Hendrick Vanyak. He picked up a scrap of paper from Corey's desk and took a pen from the holder, then scribbled down the information for Bill's wife. We need to get a message to this person, I said as I handed him the paper. That's her name and the address where she's staying in Amsterdam. What's the message? Tell her not to return home. That's it. Germans have taken everything from her apartment in the shop, and her husband is in hiding. She should not come home. She'll probably want to get in touch with him. That's not possible, at least not for now. I let my eyes scan his dress. Nice outfit. No, it's not, Hendrick grinned, but thank you for the compliment. Would you care for some soup? No, ma'am. I must get moving. And then he opened the door and stepped outside and was gone. Next week is Chapter 29. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.